Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. If you truly believe in the purpose of your company and you chase after that, then you cannot compromise. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Joining us today are Matthias Needhart and David Frost of Be United International, an importer of specialty beer, cider, sake, and meads based in Connecticut. Brewers and producers they represent such as Hitachino, Didola, Schlenkerla, Riesdorf, Domaine DuPont, and Lover Beer have had an enduring impact on the evolution of beer in America over the last 25 years. We discuss how Matthias and his son Ben's unending curiosity and desire for expertise have built a high level of trust with suppliers, allowing their tanker project and OEC to flourish and push the boundaries of what an importer is. At OEC, they're adding a sense of place to base beers they import or produce in their own brew house by harnessing native occurring bacteria and yeast captured from their own horticultural area. Fermentation in steel, wood, or a variety of other vessels such as granite tanks, Urwaga pits, and Amorphe reflects an unabating interest in fermentation practices from around the world. We end by discussing David's work in South Africa with Dr. Garth Cambray at Makana Matery and what projects lie ahead for United. Let's dive and get heavy. Matthias and David, welcome to Heavy Hops. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Same here. I'm very happy to to be um, to be joining you guys today. I wanted to ask uh, for both of you. Uh, you know, the world of imported beer is a unique uh, little world within the larger beerscape to uh, to occupy. Uh, Be United is a special company as well. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how? Uh, the both of you kind of ended up in the, um, where you where you sit respectively. Oh, well, how much time do we have? Three days. Three days, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. No, I don't, we started late nineteen ninety four. Um, at that time, obviously, the the world of beer, um, domestically as well as from an import side um, perspective, looked very very different from from today. Um, as we all know, I don't have to elaborate. I, I think the craft beer development uh, movement in the United States somewhere started 1980, mid 80s or so. And and um, it, it was intriguing for me to, to see um, all the, the wonderful flavors and aromas that developed um, domestically in the United States. Um, there was one thing though that all that kind of started to bother me a little bit uh, in the early mid 90s. Um, um, the bigger craft um, breweries, sort of microbreweries at that time, um, all of a sudden started to advertise and say, okay, now the best beers in the world are now brewed in the United States. And um, that kind of um, bothered me a little bit because all the history, all the classics were really developed in, in, in Europe. Not because Europe is so much smarter, no, not at all, but Europe is just much older. So uh, all these classic styles, all these styles were the classic representatives really 
um, uh, were created in, in Europe. And at that time, um, not many of these classics were available in the United States. So that's how we started and said, okay, give, not every American can afford to, to travel through Europe and, 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 and check out all these wonderful small breweries. So that's how we started and said, okay, we want to, to, to bring these wonderful classics into, into the market and let the Americans decide, not the companies, but you know, let the consumer decide um, what they absolutely love and and what they don't like, and the flavors and aromas, and and so that's how we started. Awesome. How did you go about finding the initial brands for Be United? Were there influential critics that you looked towards for advice, or were you going off of your own palate and what you enjoyed and what you wanted to bring to the Americas? Mm -hmm. Um, from the get-go, and I think this is uh, not, I think, this is uh, part of Be United International. At that time, today, will always be. We, 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 we don't want to say this is the best beer because all the companies say that's the best beer, whatever they brew. Um, it's very subjective. Um, um, you cannot really um, correctly validate it. So from the get-go, we said we... We don't want to make that statement. Um, we want to have some kind of an impartial guide that helps us develop um, that portfolio, but also um, um, a person that um, is recognized around the world or people are recognized around the world for, for having incredible abilities to, to, to taste and describe um, uh, beers and other um, liquids. And at that time, obviously, it was very, very clear um, that you go with the late Michael Jackson um, and, and others from UK like Roger Potts. Uh, they have written many, many books about it. They have an incredible palate. Um, I'm not even close to uh, what they can taste. And so we basically um, followed Michael Jackson in, uh, in his pocket guide to beer. Um, he, he, he actually establishes a, a somewhat an informal ranking uh, from zero stars to four stars, and he co considers the four stars the, the 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 classic example of that style. So we 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 um, we read through the, his, his entire pocket guide to beer, um, which was in in, in 1994 much much smaller than um, it was later on, and and that's how we started. And, and again, since since I was born and, and raised and lived for a long time in Europe. Um, many of these breweries um, well known to me. And, and so that's kind of where we started. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for you, David, what uh, attracted you to imported beer and to uh, a company like, uh, like Be United? Well, I was really fortunate to, uh, to meet Matthias and have that opportunity to come and work with him. It was a midlife crisis for me. You know, I grew up back in the day when uh, imported beer was a six pack of St. Pauli Girl or Bass Ale or something like this. Well, uh, as you get more exposed and your friends get more exposed to the uh, wonderful selections, the true authentic original examples of the styles from uh, continental Europe, well, you start drinking those and you start enjoying them and you start to research a little bit more and you develop that kind of appreciation. It takes over your life, like a lot of people, like a lot of your listeners here, it just takes over your life. And I was fortunate enough to make a jump from uh, uh, a office job into this current one. And for, for you, Matthias, uh, when did you uh, make the jump and come to the U.S. and... Um, what drew you to Connecticut 
So I, I, I lived in the US at, at that time, um, like the early 90s or so, when I, when I got really interested in, in, in these um, microbreweries, um, you know, and at that, that time obviously was um, Angosteam and then and the, big, the bigger ones, the Boston Beyonds. And, 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 and funny enough, or well, it's not funny at all. I mean, I, I grew up in Germany, but I have got to admit, I, I had no clue about beer, zero. I mean, sure, I mean, you drink beer in, in Germany, but it's, 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 it's not a sophisticated um, beer drinking um, what you do, you know, and you take it for granted, and it's more or less one style uh, in, in in Germany. Although there are many, many small breweries that do uh, different styles, but it's it's not. It's um, I was far away from knowing anything about beer, but I got interested in in what the American brewed because I'd never tasted anything like this, and and I was I was intrigued by it. And then they made that statement in in big advertisement, and that kind of uh, ticked me off. And then I said, um, it's about that time in my life, David had a midlife crisis. I had the crisis and said, okay, I, I am done working for bigger companies. I'm sick and tired of it. Um, and that seemed like a, a very intriguing idea to jump on uh, because also it gave me a huge, huge learning opportunity. Um, that's what I did. I, I read all the Michael Jackson books about beer that he wrote and and, and I got really into it. And then I, I, I started it with Steffi, my wife, and it was the two of us, we started it. and. And um, twenty, I don't know, twenty six years later, we 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 are still we are still there, you know, surprisingly. But it's it's so that's basically the trip. Mm -hmm. And as far as the early days go, um, what were some of the brands that you were working with early on? And I guess kind of like operationally, what did it look like back then as well? Yeah, it's I mean tiny, you know. It's like it's like all the importers. Uh, I think what we have built here in in, in Connecticut, um, I I don't think there's any other importer doing any any of that um, because that's not what an importer does. An importer really it doesn't matter whether you are small a two person company or whether the, you are like a big importer with like hundreds of people. You have your office. Uh, as, an, as a standard importer, you have your office, you have your salespeople across the country, and you don't worry usually about uh, warehousing, you don't worry about any of that because you have a um, third party operated warehouse at the incoming port, and, and that's what you do. Um, and that's kind of what we how we started. Um, um, we had a home office, um, and we, we rented space at a third party warehouse in New Jersey down there, incoming port. And they operated for us. Um, you know, they picked the products, they shipped it out, and and then stuff uh, like all the other importers. The brains, obviously, um, based on on where I grew up, um, naturally um, came from Germany. That's how we started. Um, and 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 the classic ones, uh, the classic ones that are recognized as 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 the ones in in their category, actually. Uh, you know, Hellertrom in Bamberg, um, um, unbelievable. Uh, um, and, 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 and then um, we, we had uh, uh, joined Einbecker, um, Einbecker, northern part of Germany, because they, are more, they established the Bockbier style. Um, Schneider was uh, a big part of it. Uh, Schneider, Schneider Weiss, the Argentinas. Um, part of the the classic Bavarian style wheat beer, and 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 then we went on to uh, St. Georgenbräu in Budenheim. It's not too far away from from Bamberg um, for that Keller beer, and and so that's how we got started. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about these beers? Like, made them more appealing 
thing you could say to the American public than they did to their native land. It seems like, you know, you were kind of mentioning you kind of took these beers for granted uh, growing up around them, but here it seems people almost fawn over them in a way. Yeah, it's funny enough, I when I grew up in Germany, um, and it's a little bit easier to drink beer in Germany uh, at a younger age. Um, so, but I, I, to be honest, I, I never tasted any of these beers. Um, in because they are not really widely available in Germany. In Germany, you buy your beer in a supermarket chain, grocery chain for cheap, basically very cheap money, and you take it for granted. It's almost like a commodity in in Germany um, and beers, uh, especially the Pilsner style. Um, but what we got in, incredibly lucky with our company because what there are a number of things as we all know that makes united states and the U united states consumer extraordinarily fantastic americans are extremely curious they are extremely open minded um and you know that was a phase in the, the craft beer development um the first 10 15 years where um, the people started to to um, to question these mass beers, the industry beers that have that had dominated the U.S. for so many years. Um, and Americans are incredible; they are open-minded. They are not prejudiced against it. And as everywhere we went, we said, "Oh, let me taste it. I've never tasted it. Let me taste it." That's a phenomenon phenomenon that you don't run into necessarily in Germany. Um, if you come up with something new, usually they will tell you, uh, I know exactly what I like and I like, I, I will buy what I, I will keep buying what I, what I like and I don't need to taste any of that because it's, it's not as good. So it's, it's a, 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 a dramatically different cultural um, and behavioral uh, situation in the United States and that's how we started. Uh, we just went from one place to the next, from one bar, from one um, restaurant to the next. And I can tell you, the only thing we got is, oh yeah, that's really interesting, uh, but it's too expensive. And and so the first one year, the first two years were rough because they are more expensive. Um, and, 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 and people were interested, but they were not really convinced of these places that consumers are actually willing to pay that price for it. So it was like, hard, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you go about evaluating and finding these brands that you bring in? And over time, obviously, palettes change. How does your process in picking these brands change? And then there's obviously the overlooming cloud of Michael Jackson. How do you get beyond that influence and kind of put your own influence into what the American public is drinking? From the get-go, and nothing has changed. Nothing will ever change in, in for, for Be United International. Our purpose, the meaning of Be United International, was from the get-go. We are chasing after brews of highest flavor and aroma. I used to say complexity, but every in my company they they said it's not really correct. It's we are really chasing after highest flavor and aroma harmony. Um, and and because we believe that there are people out there here in the United US in our markets that absolutely love these complicated or these um, incredible flavors and aromas, and it makes them happy. It brings a smile on, onto their, their face. That, so that's the purpose of Be United International. It doesn't matter whether we talk beer 
or very special cider or sake or anything, anything we do, anything we research, anything we experiment with is always geared towards finding something that is of extraordinarily high flavor and aroma. Uh, harmony. And obviously at the beginning, yes, Michael Jackson, Roger Protz were our guides. Um, but then over time, um, our company was able to, to hire people. Um, um, David came on, on board. Um, David, how long have you been with us now? 14 years? Uh, 15, no, 12, 16 10. years. Going on 16 years now. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and David, I think, was the uh, number four or five in our company. And we started here with Ron, Ron Fisher and, and, and David Pollack and others. But whenever we hired a person, um, we always had, from the get-go, my objective was I, I wanted to have a team of experts around me. Um, I did not want to have employees. I, I wanted to have people that 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 will become or, or have a chance to become an expert and then working with experts and and, and leading experts and and listening to experts and 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 and, and that so everybody everybody wh whom we have hired uh, goes on an extensive trip goes on an extensive trip um um to europe to check out all these classic breweries um um then uh Urige in Düsseldorf, then Didole in Belgium, then Dupont um uh, Dupont in, in France. Um I, I want them to see because these breweries are not operated by computers so much. They are really um following classic traditional processes you see a lot. Um, you taste the ingredients, you see the kilning, um, um, the, the, the smoking of the malt over, over open fire, you can look into that. Urige uh, um, has an, an open fermenter, um, has, a, has a cool ship. Uh, the doll is incredible. Uh, everything is done manually. Um, and if he's in a bad mood, he, he will make you work. And he will make you work at the bottling line, which is which is hard work. But you see, you, you, you learn a lot about the ingredients, about processes, about the systems, the way they look at at, at, at their brews and, and what the, it's important to them in terms of flavors and aromas. Um, and, and, um, and everybody this way, in my my object is to become an expert, and I love doing that because it gives tremendous tremendous value to our company. And this is how we now these days evaluate things when we get approached by breweries or producers, or when we find something, we 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 taste all together. Um, our sales organization is now 14 people or something, uh, including Connecticut, and and so we taste together, and. Um, I love these sessions because rarely ever um, will we come to a, you know, a, a unanimous decision. There is, is everybody has has their ideas, um, um, and then obviously eventually we'll have to make a decision. It's not a democracy where I say, okay, um, eight are in favor for it and, and six are not, so we go for it. It's the ultimate decision I will make. Um, but I'm very well aware if I make a decision and everybody's against it, I will have a tough time selling it because they are not selling it and said, okay, screw that, be united. Uh, I'm not going out with that. This is not my standard. So um, it's um, it's a very systematic process. I think it's a fun process, but it's all driven by expertise. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point of 
mentioning your focus on a lot of different producers using different methods and using unique equipment and having incredible stories of their own. Um, do you have conversations with your uh, with your brewery partners and your suppliers about opportunities or special products for the U.S. market? And if so, how do you kind of have those conversations with people that may uh, view what they do and through a certain prism? Yes, of course we do. Um, but actually, that didn't. Re yes, it it happened from the get go. Um, but obviously, it was very limited because we are we were a very very small company, um, and 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 so these breweries are very very old um, with a tremendous amount of history. So you cannot just go there and say, okay, this is what you guys need to do. Um, because they, they throw you out and they are fully entitled to do that. Um, so um, we started to build a company with these uh, select brands um, and we did what all the importers um, are doing. Um, then about, uh, was like in 2008, um, so about 12, 13 years later, um, we started um, thinking about building our own facility. Um, we got very, very fortunate. Um, we, had, we had grown every year um, and it came to a point where we say uh, the third party warehousing operation is no longer good enough for us. They mispicked the quality of the warehouse was not great. Um, the temperature was not great. It was dirty. It was dusty. And, and, and I said, um, enough of that. Uh, it doesn't meet our standards. And, and then um, we started to build our own warehouse here and, our, and each year we added some, something to it. Um, but prior to that, I think a great example is what you just, what you tasted um, or what you have opened is Hitachi and Nest Redwise. When we started with Kyuchi in 1999, 2000, um, I will never forget that because um, nobody at that time had ever heard about Japanese craft beer, um, you know, it, totally unusual. Um, that was the support and the Asai and, and the Kyurin and stuff, but it, it it came to, I, I read about it. I read about it in magazines um, because all of a sudden QG Brewery won awards um, in Europe, even in Germany. And, and so I contacted them uh, just via email and I didn't expect any answer. Um, and it's, you know, I just was curious about it, but within 24 hours, Toshiyuki emailed me back and, and said he would be very excited um, to learn more about our company. And then the next thing is I, I, I booked a flight to um, Tokyo and he picked me up and, and we went to, up to Kyuchi Brewery. And, and so how we started, but over time, so we started with the white ale, um, which was really, has always been his, his flagship. But, uh, you know, a couple of years later, he asked me, um, we would like to brew an American-style ember, an American-style uh, pale ale, an American-style IPA. And here it comes um, for us when we talk to our breweries. Our, really, our objective is to tell them, do not imitate or copy American breweries and American styles. They know very, very well how to do these styles extremely well. There is no need for you to brew an IPA to ship it out over the ocean and stuff like this, and then uh, come on in at a higher price point and, and compete against these incredible um, uh, American IPAs. And at that time, uh, we, 
the number of brewers in the United States was not seven or eight thousand dollars, but much less. But so I said, do not do that. What you what we think is the way to go is think about your culture, think about your heritage, think about your country, think about the flavors and aromas that your country really enjoys. Um, and we want you to keep to to use all these things and create something. And the first thing that comes to mind um, was like red rice. He is using red rice in his sake portfolio in Asamosake. So we asked him, red rice is very, very unusual. It really um, came from China and in, in Japan eventually took it over, took it over in, in integrating it into, into the product, especially into, into the world of sake. And he smiled and I said, what are you smiling about? And he said, this is very complicated. And I said, this is awesome. The more complicated it is, the better off you are, because then the less imitators you will have. Because when you have successful in the United States, um, the next day you have like 10,000 breweries or producers behind you copying you. And so he said, okay, I understand. And he said, let me sit down with our brewing team. And he, had, he has two brewing teams, one for the beer and Hitachino, and one for his sake portfolio, the Kiku Sakari. And um, a number of weeks later, he said, we have something. Can I send it to you? And and uh, that's what you're enjoying, he touched on Estradwise. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel, you know, being influential and in knowing that a brewery, even though they're creating a highly refined product that is highly processed, they still have a heritage that they can, like, impart into that beer. And so recognizing that and influencing your brands that you do carry carry in that way is so, like, I don't feel like you really get a lot of importers that are, you know, have that much influence in, like, saying, don't try and do what's already being done here. Look to your heritage and push that. That is what makes you unique, you know? And for Kiyuchi being right outside Tokyo, and I think they're right outside the Mito, uh, the city of yep. Mito as well. That's right. It's a very, very interesting, complex region because of Japan because, you know, obviously seafood is huge in Japan and especially yep. in that region. But if you go up a little further, you do have a lot of um, American influence in like the Sapporo region and up that way further. So, you know, having a brand that's kind of smack dab in the middle of that and just saying, use your heritage and do something unique. That's just, I think that's amazing. Well, you know, ask David, um, when we have our, right now it's only virtual, but um, hopefully the pandemic is over soon. And, and we usually meet all of us, David, three times a year, something like two yeah, or three days. Old days. Yeah, pre-COVID, yeah. Um, three times a year. Yeah, and the, it's always two days. And the first day, the first part, everybody hates it because the only thing we do there is we are talking about our purpose, of course, our meaning, but also about um, our competitive advantage and what we need to do to, to stay alive in a market that is brutally competitive, um, intensely competitive. And it's the easiest thing in the world really to say, um, let's just, follow what's working in the marketplace. You know, let's follow IPA. Oh, let's jump in in the IPA movement um, um, or, or any like that, because it seems to be the easy way to go. Um, other companies are in there um, um, and, and the market is there and the consumers is there. So it seems to be the right way to go. We basically go the opposite direction. 
um, we try to find something that is um, not heavily um, occupied by competitors, that is driven by unusual flavors and aromas, but also that is really very much authentic to the country and the brewery um, and the location of the brewery. And that's that's hard because we will never be a billion dollar company. It's impossible. We are a small, tiny niche player, but I don't think that's I don't think this is why David joined us to become a billionaire. I don't think anyone in our company has that objective. I think, I hope at least the people all working for us with me, um, they are excited by flavors and aromas and by by completely new things, by being innovative, by trying new things um, and, and realizing sometimes it will not work out. That's fine. It's a huge learning. And I think, I hope at least that this is why everybody um, stays at United for quite a long time. It's it's a very challenging, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, I love the environment because there's so many people with great input. It's challenging, it's risky, um, and it's it's a it's a total learning ex, um, environment. That is certainly the most stimulating part of working with the United International is the opportunity to to really investigate and research these interesting styles. Certainly, it would become brain numbing if all we did was sit around and taste IPAs all day long. Oh, what's the latest white ale? It is uh, just a take on another recipe here. And the real enjoyment out of the job for us, uh, as Matthias is saying, is identifying these culturally significant uh, new brews, uh, ones that are capturing the soul of the country, ones that are capturing flavors that we haven't seen anywhere else. Uh, as Matthias said, the Americans are the best at uh, doing the IPAs these days. And what fun would it be for us to sit around a meeting and taste a bunch of IPAs? People think that it's a great job just because we sit around and drink beer all day. No, that's not the case. We don't want to sit around and drink IPAs all the time. We want to be challenged and the taste buds stimulated. So it's uh, it's an incredible opportunity and really the only importing company I know that is uh, on that wavelength. Yeah, I think definitely the company plays on the curiosity of craft beer drinkers and the curiosity of food consumers as well too. Oftentimes you'll see your products in the same space as slow food or specialty food items. And that kind of brings me to the connection between uh, Hitachino and the rise of kind of Japanese food in the U.S. as well. And this is this is could be for both of you as well, because um, but was that one of like the earlier sort of successes in finding spaces in the U.S. outside of specialty beer locations? No, not at all. And it's we thought that um, at the beginning, but um, you also have to. You also have to know when we started in 94, 95, um, we started with um, obviously select um, German portfolio and and uh, we lived um, um, down in, in not in New York City but not, not too far away from New York City so New York was uh, New York City was a, a key market for us and um, I visited two German places um, and then after after those two visits I swore to myself never ever again I call on a German restaurant ever in my life again 
because it was horrible. The only thing I got back was um, it's way too expensive. Nobody cares. I've Spartan, I've Palana, I've Huck of Shaw. They, they're good enough. Nobody wants that crap. And, and, um, and I said, okay, great. I should have known that because I grew up in this country. Um, so we, with the German portfolio, we went into the craft beer world. Um, you know, great accounts in New York City, uh, like in Chicago, that really focused on the craft beer drink. And the craft beer drink at that time was extremely curious. Um, not so heavily um, trending towards locals um, that they are now, but at that time they, they had never tasted stuff like this. They were completely open to that, it was awesome. The same thing happened to us with the Hitachino portfolio when we started in 2000. Um, I, my gut feeling was if we go with Asian places, they will tell me exactly the same thing. Never heard of it. Way too expensive. Who, who wants to spend $10 on, on a Japanese beer? I, I can, you know, I sell Sapporo and that's good enough for everybody coming in. That was 2000. Um, and we went after the craft beer world. And the craft beer world embraced it because they had never heard about a craft brewery from Japan ever. And they loved the flavors and aromas of white ale and then later on the red wines and the Japanese classic ale, which is aged in cedar wood. And they absolutely loved it and embraced it. And that's how we started with, with Hitachino and they, in the, really the craft beer world. Uh, but the craft beer world in 2000 was very, very, very different from the craft beer world of today. And uh, I wanted to talk about the uh, container project next. Um, to finish the the kind of cr uh, chronology, just to make sure we're keeping our chronology straight. When did the when did you start the container project, and how where were you looking? Uh, because obviously no other importer was really bringing in beers in containers. So were you looking at another, how another industry solves problems to find the container project? And tell us a little bit about the, the ideation. Right. Um, yeah, it was, um, and then this, I give the, basically all the credit to, to, to Ben. Um, ben joined our company, I think it was in 2005. Um, and and um, and he actually um, completely redesigned our infrastructure, our information communication infrastructure with everybody in our, our sales organization, with our customers and stuff. Um, he he's awesome because it was like two, 2007, 2008. Um, he said, "Is this what we are doing now all day, sitting in our office and and?" Uh, we have got to do we have got to elevate the game we are playing and i um so i asked him what you what you have in mind what you think and we were at that time um already very unhappy with our, our third party warehouse and i said okay let's build one let's build one where we have total control over it um and i said okay great um let's do it um and um this is that's kind of where we moved to Connecticut um, because the place we found is the closest to New York City that you could afford. You cannot go any closer to New York City; uh, it would kill you. So it, it, I drove us to to Oxford, and um, and the beauty of that area was it was totally um, there was no building, no nothing. It was a commercial area, and and we built uh, we bought a lot. And uh, coming from Europe, I'm environmentally um, very sensitive. 
Um, and I said, okay, if we do anything, I, I want to, uh, we will not make a difference. I understand that, but I, I want to do whatever I can um, to, to help our kids and their kids uh, have an environment later on that where they can live in. So whatever little piece I can contribute. And long story, we, we bought this lot and it allows us to, to build our warehouse into, into the ground. It's like 14 or 15 um, feet built into the ground. We wanted to take advantage of thermal um, 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 energy down there. So we have to, um, we can minimize our energy cost in summertime and winter time um, and, and have natural um, um, earth um, uh, temperature down there, like 53 Fahrenheit. So we did that. Um, and so we started with the warehouse. Um, and you have no idea how scared I was when we actually opened the warehouse, the containers came in and said, oh my God, what are we going to do now? We had no warehouse experience. Nobody has ever worked in a warehouse in our, in our company. So, but we learned. Um, and and we've, our idea is if other people have figured it out, then we should be able to figure it out too, uh, because it cannot be brain surgeon, whatever we do. It doesn't matter what. So that's how we started. Uh, and about a year later, um, there was a huge ish, um, challenge coming our way. At that time, uh, draft business um, grew significantly. Um, and um, at that time, we, uh, you know, um, our brewers were not willing to, to ship their kegs. So we invested in our own keg pool and had to ship them back and forth between Europe. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare because it's very cost intense. Um, many of our brewers don't have a keg cleaning line. Um, and many of our brewers pick, brew beers um, like the Dole that are all um, keg conditioned, bottle conditioned. And we learned the hard way that they don't really know what their yeast does over time. This sounds simple, but it's a very, very difficult issue. Uh, it's not an issue if you're a small brewery and you sell around um, in your local community because time doesn't matter. Um, the, you, you're not giving time, um, yeast time to develop all kinds of activities and create CO2 and all, all kinds of other things. But it's very, very different, um, different when you ship it across the ocean. And when here you come in the three-tier system, you have to ship it to a wholesaler and it's sitting in their warehouse and comes in a bar and goes in a cold box. And then he wants to keg, he wants to tap it three months later and he says the keg is bad. And I said, what, what, what do you mean it's bad? Oh, it's foamy. Um, if we cannot pour it. And then you realize um, the yeast is very active um, and has produced, obviously has consumed more sugar and produced as a byproduct CO2. And all of a sudden it didn't become, um, you couldn't pour it anymore. And so we went back to the brewers and said, okay, you have got to, to analyze it. You need to know exactly what you do when you do when you introduce a secondary fermentation, you need to know exactly where the yeast is going to stop. Otherwise we run into huge issues. And then the brewers basically told us, um, no, we don't have money for that um, to build a lab. And second of all, it doesn't interest us because whatever we sell in our small Belgium town, uh, people will enjoy it in the next two weeks. We have no, we have no, we don't have that issue. That is your issue. And we knew if we keep growing our import portfolio, draft portfolio, we will run into huge, huge issues. And that's where the idea of 
tank container come? And it didn't come overnight because we looked at everything. We looked at how other importers are doing. And then at that time, one way CAC started um, to come into play. And I said, again, based on my upbringing, I will not touch one way CACs um, for two reasons, um, environmental reasons, because the United States compared to Europe doesn't have an um, developed um, recycling system. So all these one-way kegs will end up on landfills. I will not allow that. I, I, or, or I don't want to contribute to that. Um, we asked our European breweries, how do you feel um, if your kegs end up on, on landfills, if we use one-way kegs? And I said, that's not our issue. That's the US issue. And I said, really? I, I, I was hoping they would give me a different answer, but they didn't. But, and then the other thing is you cannot really, it's extremely risky using one-way kegs when you do a secondary fermentation when you don't know where the yeast is going. It's, we had instances reported to us where these kegs exploded and that's life-threatening. Um, that can kill you. And I said, there's no way I'm going to take that risk. So, we were stuck. Um, and then just one day when we, when I drove to work or so, we, I saw a tank container um, and not one that ships swimming pool water, but it seemed to come from a dairy place. And I followed him and I came to the farm and asked him, how, how do you do that? Is this milk unpasteurized? And, and, and so we, we started to talk and he said, you, the industry you really need to talk about is orange juice. Go down to Florida or anything, they sh usually ship orange juice in, in 10 containers and they have a very small margin of error. If you can do it, if they can do it, then you can do it, but talk to them how, how it needs to be done. And that's how we started. We, we try to look at different industries, whatever we do, to learn as much as possibly um, from other industries, um, and, and um, this one was huge for us. And that's how we started to think about tank, tank containers. Yeah, it was such a game changer when the tank containers, before we were struggling with the quality issue and uh, our accounts, our bars, our restaurants were not always happy with the product that we were serving them. And uh, the consumers weren't happy. They expected to taste exactly like it tastes over in Germany or exactly like it tastes over in Belgium. And as Matthias was describing, you have that additional fermentation and it was changing the beverage. Then from my end, you also have the nightmare of a variety of keg types and keg condition. They would arrive battered because they've been across the pond back and forth several times. You'd have different couplers. It was just uh, a logistic headache for us as well as a quality. So it was overnight uh, a, a real game changer. Quality just went off the charts here for us and, and everyone's happy and everybody. Uh, well, how many containers are we up to now, Matthias? We have seven large ones, um, and then we have we operate smaller shipping tanks, uh, forty-five smaller shipping tanks, and and um, so the really the interesting part about the, the tank containers was so we we looked at the, the, this industry uh, mostly orange uh, orange juice, and and um, then the next question is oh my god we need to find a manufacturer, um, and um, the it's you know you. You're lucky. It's just lucky sometimes when you when you talk to people. All of a sudden, we have obviously truckers coming here to our place, picking up, and so and 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 uh, I, I mentioned this to 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 one of the trucking companies, and they said, "Oh, oh, let me connect you to a company in UK," um, and they built ten containers, and 
And um, we also got a, a lead into China. Um, and, and so we talked to both of them and the UK said, what you have in mind, nobody has ever done that. And I said, what are you talking about? And I said, the, the configuration, the design you want, nobody has ever done that because usually a tank container is a one compartment thing where you want to have as much volume in there as, as you possibly can. I said, that's not what we want. We want four compartments independent from each other that gives us flexibility to go to four different breweries or to the same brewery you know, and pick up four different brands and it needs to be temperature controlled um, and each compartment needs to be temperature controlled and I said yeah you're crazy nobody's ever done that um, and we said we, we asked them can you do it and they said let let me they said okay we will talk to each other um, and uh, and um, and they eventually came back and said, yeah, I think we can do it. And uh, so we started with the first one was delivered to us, I think mid end 2010. And it was awesome, it was unbelievable. Um, because by the time it, it came to us, we had to build an infrastructure. So far, we only had the warehouse. But actually, when you have a, a big tank of beer coming, this is nice. But you need to do something with it. So you need to have a kegging line and you need to have a keg cleaning system and you need to have all of that in place. And so we built that. Um, we built a little um, small addition to our warehouse and, and, and um, bought a, a small kegging line back in Austria. Um, and so the tank container arrived and we tasted the beer, um, the temperature um, display, everything was perfect. Usually shipped at 35. 34, 35 Fahrenheit. We, we, we opened the, the sample valve and the breweries were very, very nervous about it. Um, that's a completely different story. But we tasted it, it was awesome. And I said, this is great. So how are we going to get it into kegs? And we, we had never done it, anything like this. And, um, but Ben was very well prepared. And so we started to, um, to, to keg. And we didn't have a computer um, controlled a keg cleaning system at the time. So we had to connect, we had to do it through our hoses and, 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 um, and doing manually. And I remember one time um, Ben went on a trip to Japan to work with Kyuchi on new projects and a tank container came and Steph and I had to do it, the cleaning. I, I called Ben, it was midnight at our time and it's Japanese time, it was like one o'clock the next day or something, the 30 hours later. And it's like, I should use the F word because that's what I told him. It's like, I'm stuck here. I don't know what to do and how, how to operate these pumps and all of that. And, uh, and um, but he cut me down and we cleaned it. And so that was the first tank container. It worked really well. And then we added over the next two or three years, um, six more and they, um, they're doing really, really well. Yeah. Um... I just think this is an amazing project that you guys have really built out. And there's just like a lot of things I want to highlight. First of all, the massive infrastructure layout that needed to happen in order for this to be an actuality. And then the amount of overhead that this would have cost initially to make this project a reality as well. Seeing the end product from these Belgium and German breweries being more similar to what you would experience in Europe, do you feel like this is absolutely the correct way to 
bring these beers over? Do you see a substantial difference? And are customers ultimately more happy with the way that you are doing it versus your competitors? We, we strongly feel based on the purpose and the meaning of our company to go really for brews of highest flavor and aroma, complex your harmony, whatever you want to call it. I think strongly feel we had no choice because if you go with, if that is your purpose, then you basically have to deal with beers that are all, that, that all undergo secondary fermentation. So you have to deal with active yeast. Look, if you're an importer or local brewery or domestic, it doesn't matter. That basically takes that factor out of the game by either um, not doing a secondary fermentation or at the end, after the secondary fermentation, whatever you pasteurize, um, then you don't have that issue. Um, you don't have to worry about all of that. Um, but if you truly believe in the purpose of your company and you chase after that, then you have got you cannot compromise. The pro our challenge was that the breweries said we cannot do it. So the two choices, we had, we had three choices. One, the first choice, the easiest one is saying, screw that, way too complicated. Uh, let's pick different beers that are easier to handle and we can handle them the traditional way. Um, the second option is to say, well, they're not, they're the brand owners. Um, if they don't want to make the investment, we are not making the investment. Why? We, we, we are not the brand owners. And take the risk and, and ship to our customers' accounts, bars, restaurants, and consumers, whatever we get from them. But we knew this is a very, very bad, bad way to go because it will come back to haunt us. Um, and then the third one is you, you say, okay, this is our purpose. If you truly believe in it, then we'll make it work. And we built the knowledge, we built the infrastructure. That's easy. I mean, you buy a kegging line, you know, that's easy. You build a building, that's not a, everybody can do that. You buy computers, everybody can do that. That's not, not difficult. But then you have to learn how to use it and how, how, you know, how to make it work. Um, again, none of us had ever worked in a warehouse. Um, none of us had ever dealt with that brewing part, um, you know, uh, transferring beers from a tank container into tanks, uh, doing a secondary fermentation, following the instructions of the breweries and then caking it correctly and, and stuff. Nobody, we never did it. Um, so you learn, you really learn along the way and uh, you have to learn fast and you have to be willing to learn and, and to make an investment. Um, and um, we said, we truly believe in that. We have no choice. Let's do it. And there's a high level of trust that a supplier has to have in its import partner to engage in a project like that. Uh, in particular, with some of your uh, some of your suppliers um, do things in a certain way for very strong reasons that they wear as a badge of as a badge of pri uh, of pride as well. Um, what went into building those layers of trust with your suppliers to get them on board with this project? And then how did you execute uh, finishing their products uh, stateside? Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, that was, we, we knew this is going to be a, uh, not easy. 
um, you have to under when we did that, it was like 2009, 2010 or so. So we, we had been in business for 15, 16 years. So is that right? No. Yeah, about. Um, and um, so we, we had gained some credibility. We had gained some credibility with breweries because we have we had given like Huchi Brewery, like H. Schlengele, uh, other breweries um, um, ideas. What liquids, what flavors, um, yeah, what brews they should develop for the United States market and the ideas were successful. So over those 14, 15, 16 years, we had built a lot of trust uh, with them that we are not just some weirdos um, telling them what to do. Um, the next thing that really important was um, I, I sent Ben on a learning on a learning journey, um, sent him to these critical breweries where you really learn not to turn on a computer and the computer does the rest of us, uh, does, does the rest of it, but you really learn to deal with these complicated brewing processes. So he spent um, some time in, in Japan at Kiyuchi, um, got involved also in, in, in the brewing of sake, which is very, very complicated. Uh, he spent some major time at Didole. Um, this is an awesome place to learn because everything is done manually including the comp, comp, very complex secondary fermentation. He spent some major time at Dupont, um, at, at the, the cider, the French Dupont cidery in the Normandy. Uh, again, extremely complicated because they uh, operate with wild yeast um, sitting on the skin of the apples. Um, and and he spent some time at Echt Schlenkel. And, and so he, he, always with the brewmasters, never with marketing people always with the brewing team only. And and um, so when he came back, I asked him, are you ready? And he said, yeah, I feel I'm ready. And then when we started it, and and these are also the breweries where we started with, um, because Ben um, knew what, what needs to be done, uh, was trained in in, 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 in in dealing with their beers. And of course, breweries will tell you what, you want to touch my beer in the United States, that it's not going to happen. Nobody is allowed to touch my beer. Um, and But Ben learned a lot. Um, they trusted him. And and like the doll, um, gave him complete instructions um, on, on, on how to do the secondary fermentation, um, the yeast, um, the sugar, um, everything, all the details, and 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 he, le he learned it, and and that's how we jumped into it, and it turned out to be really, really good because the purpose of all that, the objective of all of that was that we are in control of what we are sending out to our customers. Again, these are not pasteurized beers where nothing can happen. The beer is dead, nothing can happen. These are absolutely live products where a lot of things are going on. Um, no matter whether you bottle it or keg it. And we wanted to be in control of it um, because we felt like we are willing to make an investment in terms of instruments, equipment, knowledge um, that um, many of these breweries were not willing to do or able to do. And we said, okay, if this is what we need to do to build our company, then we want to be in charge of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, Definitely something for a uh, question for both of you. Now that you have these uh, these products that are in cans in the States, um, 
in a medium that's maybe different than uh, people who've been to Europe and drank these uh, these beers that they may have been used to. Uh, what was the reception like, and was there any sort of uh, convincing that had to be made of these people? David? I think people are generally uh, very receptive to the ideas of uh, of canning of these projects. They were very surprised to see such a, a diverse range being presented to them now, but you know, people have gotten past the stigma of, of cans, and uh, if anything, I think they see that as an indication that we're moving forward. And again, we're driving the industry here, uh, being able to offer a lot of things that were never available before and are uh, really, really fresh. We obviously, we have, we have deep discussions with our breweries. Um, the dollar, Chris of the dollar, he's, he's hilarious. He, um, he always surprises me. When we approached him with a tank container, I would have bet my life that he says, no way, no way. It was the total opposite. He immediately banks out, that's the best idea he has heard in a long, long, long time. Um, the same with cans. He said, this is a pretty amazing idea. Uh, let's try it. Um, it, it could work. Um, great, very different discussion with Matthias, actually um, in, in Bamberg. Um, he obviously is very much um, in the tradition uh, with his style, with his brewery, with his customers. And and um, so we said, uh, he says at that time, three, four years ago, he said, I don't want to do it with the Merton yet. Um, maybe I will get really bad feedback um, through social media here in, in, in Germany, um, but I would be willing to do it with the actually the Hullers. And his argument was, the actual Hullers is not using any smoked malt. And he said, the actual craft beer Merzen, this is his flagship. He says he doesn't want to risk it yet. Um, and so we started with the actual Hullers. And, and I can tell you, when we can it here, it's incredibly awesome um, to taste it fresh from the can. You also have to understand when we bring it over in our tank container, he leaves it unfiltered. He doesn't do that in the bottled version. He he does it only for us in the tank container. It's it's unbelievable. And then when you can it, so we were only able to do it in kegs, and now in cans, it's it's an incredible liquid. And of course, social media and Germans they heard about it and sent him a note and said, "You know, you have lost it, and you lose tradition and style, and beers need to be in bottles." And he emailed it to me and exactly, yeah, it's. There will be always people, you know, that 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 think differently, um, and and but I I think it's the right way to go because the feedback in U.S. by U.S. consumers was 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 totally awesome, and and um, and he agreed with us, um, and then eventually he said, yeah, I I I think it's even the right way to go for the Merton from a freshness perspective, and also I think you have a can. It's he leaves it unfiltered as well in a tank container when we can it, and it's it's it's. It adds tremendous body and flavor and character and aroma to 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 the beer. It's it's awesome. And, and he says he's thinking about. Um, he's not ready yet to do it, but he thinks his future long term will be more cans than bottles for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that the bottle cost 
keep going up. Um, just the, you know, the glass keeps going up, and it doesn't really make sense. Um, and uh, also, cans are if you have a if you have a recycling system in place, it's lighter in weight, it's it's friendlier, it's also less exposed to sun and, and all of that. So he says long term, he feels like that's the way he he wants to go and he needs to go too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting idea that uh, people are willing to come on in different uh, in different capacities or at different lengths. But once they see the results, then they may be convinced and uh, something may switch with them. Yeah. Um, and as far as the uh, OEC, this seems like it's sort of an extension in ways of the Zimitor project, uh, but also in a way of kind of how you go about things. I, I don't really get a... Uh, perception that you're interested in half-assing anything. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's 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 weird, you know. Obviously, when people ask me so about Be United and 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 and, and whether we had that plan from the get-go, and I kind of tell everybody that's BS. Is of course that was our master plan when we started in 1994. It's all BS. Of course it is. You, you grow and you see opportunities and, and 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 see what you're building and the knowledge you are building in your company, and then you want to leverage it and, and build on it. So keep in mind when we started 1994, we brought over finished beer, and then we started. Some some years later, we started to tell breweries kind of what recipes they should develop, and that got us very much involved into into kind of really the development, the experimental stage of things. Then we built it, we built a warehouse, and then we had the tank containers coming, and then so we we, we had to learn to transfer beer into a tank, and then we had to learn to do a secondary fermentation. When you really look at all of that, is we basically started at the at at the wrong end. When you are when you are brewmaster, we started at at the wrong end. Your brewmaster starts with ingredients, and you know, and then he 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 grinds the the the, the, the malt, and then and then he he crushes the malt, and then he goes into the mash tun, adds hops. We started from the total opposite end, but we worked our way all the way almost to the first step, and that's when Ben. We talked and said we basically have learned a lot. Um, we, the one thing that we have not done yet is basically meshing and 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 then maybe um, adding hops. But everything else, more or less, we have learned. So it's time for us to build our own small brewery. Um, and that's when 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 we built OEC and. We always, from the get-go, we said we don't want to compete with our imported breweries at all. So we want to do we want to do it completely different. Um, very intrigued at that time, um, you know, by the movement into um, using barrels, uh, wine barrels, and, and spirits barrels as an aging medium. Very intrigued by using um, wild yeast. Um, uh, so very, very historic um, um, fermentation techniques and maturation techniques. Um, and the design of the brewery was really very much inspired by how the dollar is configured. He has an open cool ship. He has uh, the um, French Baudelot heat exchanger. 
Um, and so we were, it impresses us because it gives your bros an, uh, you have the opportunity to, to, build, to brew something, to create something that has uh, incredible flavors and aromas. Um, and, um, and that was the plan. And then Ben said, I need different ingredients um, to make it special. And I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, I would like to have some, some fruits and some berries and, 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 and some herbs. And in our company, the philosophy is if you want to add something, we are not buying it, we are growing it. So we built our small greenhouse for, for herbs. Uh, we have rosemary and lavender and 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 lemongrass in there and other things. And then over time, we built two um, greenhouses um, that that house um, very rare citrus citrus fruits. And then we have an orchard around us where we where we where we where we planted our peach trees and we have our own grapes and and raspberries and strawberries and all wild and and so um, we uh, all these things are now available. Um, as an ingredient, but also as a as a as a as a medium to 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 deliver to us wild yeast, spontaneous yeast, um, um, wild yeast, um, because we we are not cleaning any of that. We use it so that gives a, another um, dimension into all the creations that we're doing here. It's definitely a um, a very creative endeavor. You're you're looking more outside of the traditional beer making spectrum and taking styles that might be traditional to what is in your portfolio, but kind of shifting them and adding ingredients and doing them in ways that haven't really been done before. Do you, is your goal to not necessarily, you actually said this, your goal isn't to necessarily compete, but do you find that you definitely look towards these beers that you already do carry for uh, influence in what you're creating? And then I guess my other question too is along this route of being creative and trying out new things, you also have a bread program and a coffee program, um, which yeah. is amazing. That's, I love that. Um, where did that influence come from? Um, going back to your first question. Uh, so we learn a lot from what what OEC is creating, um, and, and from a um, process um, perspective, um, obviously there's open fermentation involved, there's barrel aging involved, there there is wild yeast involved, there, there, um, and all of that, and it gives us an it gives us opportunities to tell some of our breweries what they should do, um, what they could possibly do um, in their own creation um, of when they when they are about to create something very, very authentic, that is very country specific, that we do not want to replicate at all. We want to stay very far away from that, but it gives us an idea what they can actually do, ideas that they have never come up with. And that I, I will call on David in a minute uh, to talk about a project for me that is one of the most stunning things we have ever done and and we just bottled it and and dave david actually uh flew down to south africa um to work on that and i think this idea um was really really supported and created by what we're doing at oic then the other thing is 
everything around here is about fermentation and maturation, everything. Um, and I'm really, really curious and highly interested in, 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 in fermentation. And, and it's really very, very close. The, the, the difference between bread and, and beers, one is liquid, the, the, one, the other is solid. Everything else is very, very, very similar. Um, and so it intrigued me because when I grew up in Germany, there was one small bakery and I loved their bread. Um, and, but the bread is so different from today's breads in, 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 in a way. So I, I bought this, cost $600. It's a six, it's a series of six books. It's called, um, it's amazing. It's called um, The Modernist Bread. I shouldn't make advertising for that, but it's, it's an awesome, it's like five or six uh, huge, huge uh, things about all about bread and, and um, to, to learn much more. I had no clue about bread making, no clue. Um, and so what I came up with, what I really wanted to do is only use wild yeast. So we created our own sourdough yeast, but we don't keep them stable. Um, we let them go in all kinds of directions. We only use um, our beers or ciders or so as, as the liquid, we don't use water. Um, we only use whole grains, um, heirloom grains. Um, so uh, we are not just uh, taking the, uh, the the inner part of it um, that has a lot of protein and starch, um, and 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 it takes about six days from the day we start uh, reactivating our 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 sour sourdough starter until we actually bake in in our oven. So, um, but I love it. Um, and then the same thing is. <laughs> With coffee, I have always loved coffee. I had no clue about coffee beans or anything like this. Um, so I bought books, not about marketing of coffee beans. I, I read a book, a couple of books from, from a scientist written on coffee beans. And that captured my, my attention. And I, I thought that is an amazing thing, these green coffee beans. And I thought if, if, if I experiment with some of these green coffee beans and do some wild fermentation, um, maturation things at our place, it might just work. And uh, so I do that on a very, very small scale. But David, I, I'm, I'm calling on you now to talk about this, what we call the method accidental, which basically summarizes our thinking, our ideas, what we are doing, um, David was in full charge of that, the knowledge that I really love for everyone in our company to have. David. You know, it's just taking the wild yeast conception really and, uh, and running with it. it. It occurred to us what makes a product really local, really indigenous, okay? I mean, you can, as a brewer, you can get your uh, malt from somewhere, you can get your hops from somewhere, you can even get your yeast somewhere to be, but what you can really start to call your own is when you're using local produce, local ingredients, and ideally local yeast. I mean, we've done the same thing with our greenhouse in, in Oxford. Uh, that's why Ben likes to use so many of the ingredients and insists on using the ingredients right out of his own greenhouse because it makes it his, okay? And the wild yeast that Matthias was talking about uh, coming in on some of these uh, ingredients. Well, we wanted to take that, as you know, we do a lot of work with mead and uh, I've been working with a meadery in South Africa. The idea was, hey, can we capture a snapshot of an actual location, the flavors of a location 
of honey and of mead and involved those local ingredients and only those wild yeasts and rainwater actually to make a very traditional, very ancient, very local uh, indigenous beverage. So I went and uh, spent some time in South Africa with uh, Dr. Garth Cambrai, our uh, expert in mead making there. And we went out into the bush and sourced some local honey and sure enough, got some rainwater together and uh, inoculated these batches with the yeast from the very area that was uh, producing the honey. And these honeys were wildly different too. We'd be using eucalyptus honey, which would come out green. And then we'd use some other honeys that would come out virtually black and some that were golden. And you're playing around with Africanized honeybees and you're really getting a feel for the nature of, uh, of, the, of the area there. And that was sort of our goal. Uh, you put these all together in wine barrels from the area. So everything is contained there. It's something that you cannot reproduce at home. Okay. It's something that can only be done there because you are using those very specific ingredients. And that's very much in keeping with uh, the idea of, of, of wild yeast and uh, what OEC is doing. Um, home brewing, if you will, uh, a real classic ancient beverage. It's a lot of fun. And uh, this, this is an interesting point because it sounds like you're aiding in the creation of sense of place. Exactly. That's our goal uh, in particular is we really do want to, in these days especially, you can't travel across the pond and just go visit a place. How do we bring that to you? Well, we're bringing those kind of flavors. And we could transplant the core ingredients there, the base ingredients. And, you know, we could ferment them at OEC and it's not going to be the same product because you don't have the yeast there. You're not using the local waters. You're not using the uh, the fruits as they occur right there, literally tumbling off of a rooftop into the barrels that are just sitting out there and soaking up uh, like a good aging, a single malt scotch, for example. The barrels are sitting out there in the South African sun, experiencing a wide temperature range uh, and going through those fluxes that really give it that character. And uh, so we're trying to bring that into the glass of the consumer and uh, rather than you going there. And they're very uh, identifiable too. I mean, you can really tell the difference of these areas. Mm -hmm. And you're also uh, offering kind of a, a modern twist on something that's highly traditional as well too. Maybe not so modern. It's pretty much the old historic method. I mean, in Africa, they consume more uh, mead in its various forms than anywhere else in the world, but most of it is home brewed. You can buy it on the side of the road. Now, obviously, that's not very good because it's not uh, quality controlled as far as uh, wild, uh, crazy yeasts go. Um, it's oftentimes very bad, but, uh, you know, you have a guy who has his doctorate in mead making helping you out a little bit, and he knows a little bit about... Uh, microbiology and uh, he knows what to let go and uh, how best to encourage that kind of fermentation. It's an old technique. I mean, that's literally how it started, right? We call it method accidental because it's sort of a spin on the method champenois idea, okay, of naming it by how it happened accidentally, right? Uh, Dr. Cambrai left a big vat of honey out in the back of his truck one day. It rained. Oops, he didn't throw it out. It started to ferment. And 10 years later, that was an 
absolutely brilliant mead, uh, bottled it and saved some of it. So we tried to reproduce that. It was the same thing as uh, historically happened with mead, it's just an accident, and uh, we're capturing that. Just a quick follow-up on that, and so um, just to see, you know, the environment we, we are working in about four or five or six years ago, I don't quite remember Dr. Cambrai, um, sent me an email and said, okay, I just got rid of my bottling line. And I said, and why would you ever do that? And I said, oh, well, you know, it, it, it broke down, it's no good and blah, blah. And I said, okay, so what are we going to do now? You know, you're down in South Africa and we are up here. We cannot, you know, since, how do you want to get your meat you know, to us? You have to bottle it. And he said, no, I, I will just put them, I, you know, we'll buy together some wonderful wine barrels and I put the liquid into the wine barrels and I ship them in a 20 foot container to you. And I said, okay, and then, oh yeah, then you have wine barrels and then you bottle. And I said, we don't really have a bottling line. Yeah, well, then you have to buy a bottling line. So, so we had to buy a small bottling line on top of it to, to make it work um, um, because He's such, he has so, so much knowledge and it's all about the local character of it. And just to finish that story, um, David said, uh, those barrels method accidental um, arrived at our place uh, late last year. Um, and, and we um, just early this week, um, we, we tasted all the barrels and, and, uh, um, and, and found the perfect blend for it. And um, Two days ago, we had to put, um, transfer the barrels into tanks because they, we will have to bottle it. And one of our one of our um, operations manager, Clark, he came to me and said, "You will not believe this." And I said, "What happened?" He said, "You should have seen what came out of these barrels." And I said, "What do you mean?" Oh my God! There were parts of the beehive still in there, and bees were in there, dead, of course, but. They said, oh my God, so we had to, you know, we have to now there in the tank and we have to um, um, somehow filter it um, in order to avoid bees going into, into, into the bottles and stuff. But that's kind of, that's kind of the thing we are doing here. <laughs> so you've uh, some unintentional proteins added to that beverage. That's right. That's right. I, I want to uh, kind of widen the conversation out a little bit and look at the kind of current state of imports, although you've firmly illustrated that imports are only a part of what you do in a certain sense. You know, you have beers that are those of your producers, and then you have beers that are almost ours in the sense that uh, you've contributed something and they've contributed something, and you have yours as well, which are more or less products that you've created out of the methods you've sort of described. Um, we've seen kind of the role and the importance of imported beers change over time as the market in the United States matures, as we, we've seen uh, the number of breweries increase and the number of uh, brands that are sending product to the U.S. and the number of SKUs decreasing. And with that, importers have changed how they operate in some sense or in some cases go out of business altogether. You've obviously found a, a very unique uh, and singular, or you found a number of different ways of going about hedging against this. Um, when you look at uh, 
American producers that are trying to emulate classic styles. And certainly a number of them produce, uh, you know, interpretations of styles that you've imported uh, over the years. Do you see um, some kind of synergy there in the sense of them being stewards of your portfolio in a certain way? And is there an opportunity to create synergy between what they're doing and what you're doing? Oh, wow. Um, I, I think there were, there were more or less a lot of synergies when we started, and especially if I look back um, throughout from 2000 to, to 2010, 12, 13, 14, um, because the market was in, exploding, uh, you know, more and more consumers really found interest in it. And, and, and the number of US breweries was much less than today. And, and in an exploding market, when you have more and more people coming in, being interested or so, so you more or less work in a way all together, you know, to, um, to, to bring excitement to the marketplace. And, and you, you look, when, great example for me is sour ales. Um, and, 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 and nobody in, in, when we started would have ever thought that sour ales would become for some time a huge, huge thing in the United States. And it became a, a very significant um, thing for some time. And, and, and it, it brought in a lot of new people into the world of beers, beers that people that don't really like the beer flavor or the malt character of it, or but they were intrigued by sour ales because it, it was much closer to the acidity of wines. And so you, you brought so many more people in there. Um, and it's, it's I, I go back five years ago and read magazines and all the all these famous beer experts here in the United States that we believe that the beer market, the craft beer market can grow, very likely can grow to 50% of the total beer consumption. And at that time I thought, oh my God, oh my God, don't get, don't get too carried away. 50%, it's huge. I mean, it's huge. I, I do not know of any food category, any, where the specialty part of it is accounts for 50%. That's, I, I, I thought it's very, very unlikely. And then over the past five years, the market has changed dramatically. I mean, obviously you have now a lot of US breweries and consumer have changed. Um, they are very, very um, inspired by their local breweries um, because I think there are uh, some of the, uh, many of these brew wonderful beers. Um, I think they also, they are inspired to, to, to support them because they want to support their local community. Um, and, and I think also worldwide, uh, th there's a trend of, of, of giving, uh, let me, I, I don't want to be political here, but to give preference to, to, to your domestic things. Um, let's put it this way. Um, and that has obviously, and the, and the market, I don't think the market is growing anymore. And the market, I don't know the numbers and how you calculate the numbers of the craft beer market, is it 20% or 18%, but I think the market is, is, is no longer growing. Um, and there are huge movements inside the market, no question about it, people moving from this category to this style and, and, and so forth. Um, but then 
so the the imports in my opinion are under massive um pressure and then obviously in you in united states you always have to you've always got to be prepared that something out of left side is coming every and you don't know but you have got to be prepared and and you see it with the heart salsa movement a heart salsa movement has come incredibly strong and i i don't think four or five years ago anyone would have predicted that heart salsa is the the, the latest growth phenomenon here in the United States. And, and I think a lot of craft beer drinkers have moved into, into hard seltzers too. So in, bottom line is US market is ultra competitive, fantastic breweries and companies operating here with fantastic liquids. The consumer um, changes very often because he's, he or she is so open-minded, very different from you know like a German consumer um and so you have to be prepared for that you never know what's coming but you have got to be extremely fast and flexible and make you know and then jump on things that you think could work and then you have to see whether it works and if it doesn't work stop it immediately and think about something else and jump on it and that's what we're doing that's what we have been doing over the past 10 20 years and i think our company today looks very very different from the company how we started, of course, and then very different from 2000, very different from 2010. And, and, and um, so um, we now um, we survived the, the COVID. Um, it was hard on us because on-premise got so hammered. Um, and on-premise is a big, big part of our company, but we survived. I think we, um, we got, of course, lucky, but I think we, 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 we have, we are trying at least to be fast and flexible and, and have ideas that we want to try out in the marketplace and some of them work really well. And that, but that's what you need. Um, a, num a number of importers have picked up brands from the US market and used their wider distributions uh, footprint to help move product around. And some of them have been very successful with brands. Uh, thinking of like Shelton Brothers and Jolly Pumpkin, for example, there have been successful partnerships that have come out of that kind of arrangement. Obviously, you have a U.S. brand uh, that works within um, that works with product you're bringing over. Uh, is that a direction that's of interest to you as far as developing other brands that are in the U.S.? No, not at all. Totally not. And for me, it's this this has nothing to do with the purpose of our company this is just thinking about in 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 terms of and we had that discussion in our company see very very serious discussions uh, very hot discussions um four five six years ago um just think about it in terms of value the value you 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 create if if i'm a us boy and an importer comes to me and said okay i have this network um i'm going to um develop your brand i would say what value are you going to provide to me really um longer term because i'm located here in the united states if i want to expand my my organization my my distribution system i, I simply call a wholesaler I don't need an importer. Um, um, I, I'm going to call a wholesaler in, in New York City, in, in Chicago, um, wherever I want to go. And and um, so what value are you actually adding 
to it besides the margin you're going to add to it. Um, yes, I will not have that moment that distributor network he might have um, at that time, but you know, if if you're if you're a brewery, um, you, you you might not need it the entire network at that time. And then what are you going to do? And then let's say the, the broker, the import is doing a good job and it's growing the brand. At one time, the brewery says, "Why the hell do I need him?" And you know, an extra margin. I mean, I I should I talk. I want to talk to my wholesaler directly, um, and I will. Uh, I have now enough sales and I will uh, invest in my own sales organization. It, it, in short, I could not see any value that I could actually offer to a local brewery, um, seriously offer. Um, and that's why I said I'm not going there because it, it might be short term um, business, but long term, that brewery would be stupid if 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 that brewery stayed with, with an importer because the importers unless he has a really serious sales organization, um, um, he just adds costs, but not really long-term value. That's my perspective on it, because I, I, I would I, I would strongly feel like this if, if an importer came to me, came to OEC and said, okay, I'm going to take you into my network. And I said, why do I need you? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, we've seen in a certain sense that those relationships haven't been long-term and that in some cases it's been a mechanism more for the supplier to be able to grow in the short term right. or to fill out their production. Yeah, and great. then eventually uh, they can take advantage of that. That's correct. That's correct. And you're absolutely correct. Short term, absolutely. But I, I, I try to, to stay away from short term ideas. Um, it's if I, 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 we try to do in our company things that we think have, 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 have a chance to build something long-term, uh, building value either with wholesalers or consumers or so long-term uh, and stay away from short-term things. Um, and um, you're absolutely right. Short-term, yes, long-term, I couldn't see any anything in there. Mm -hmm. And now uh, in lieu of, uh, of the changes in the import business as well, there are uh, a number of brands that don't have representation in the U.S. anymore that have been in the market or that are sought after in some way. Uh, are these opportunities that you're looking at at the moment? Uh, not really. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, one reason is um, we are very, very not sensitive. That's not true, but we have brands that have been in the United States before, they, they, all, they, they always have a history. And, and you don't know really um, whether the history is a good one, a bad one, or whether there are some kind of hidden um, whatever um, out there. So you have to, be, I think you have to be very, very careful. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is, um, there is this three-tier system in the United States, but um, the wholesalers are heavily protected in every single state by franchise laws. So um, if we as a tiny company um, acquired some of these um, producers, then it's very, very likely that it would force us into a different network, into a different wholesale network. And, and um, this is for us, 
not a great thing to do because if you have your entire portfolio with one wholesaler, let's say New York City, and, and the new brand has to be with the other wholesaler because they cannot agree on, 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 on a transfer or so, then how are you going to manage it in, in, a, in an efficient way, in an effective way? Um, so there are, for us, I mean, if you're a big company, you know, it, you, you pay money and, and off you go and you can solve all of that. Um, by m throwing money in it, but um, there are significant legal hurdles there, um, and so I'm I'm I tend to say I'm not interested. There are of course a few brands I I would absolutely go after it, no question about it. But it's it's very 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 few. Definitely, kind of to wrap this all up. Um... Is there anything really that we can look forward to coming from Be United, or do you have any cool projects working with uh, OEC that you have coming up as well that the people can look forward to? Yes. Um, uh, talk to David. We, we, are talk, <laughs> we are talking. We are talking. A big, significant part of what we're doing here is is we are experimenting a lot. Um, everything is around fermentation and maturation and. Uh, and um, so there is there, there are some really I think interesting things um, coming in in the pipeline um, that we have been working on. It's unfortunately for you, it's too early to tell you about. Um, and um, but um, this is for me the, the, the really the interesting part um, at Be United is is um, experimenting, uh, researching, and and because it's it's you learn a whole lot um and it's it's intriguing because you don't know where it takes you so that, yeah in a, in a nutshell hopefully it will make it to the market this year next year and hopefully yeah hopefully it will make it to the market um and then we'll, we'll see talk and see stay tuned <laughs> awesome well thank you very much uh david and matthias for joining us we're looking forward to everything that's coming up from Be United, and uh, we wish you uh, all the best, and we hope that you'll continue to be able to get cans so that you can uh, continue to send us all these uh, wonderful beers that you're packaging in Connecticut. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Alexi and Sam. Um, it was so great to be um, with you uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank, thank you, you for bringing all this great beer to us. <laughs> <laughs>